Hey, good morning. So, uh, move my chair a little bit. Uh, so, uh, last week, you uh, want to give a quick recap in this uh, little mini Christmas series we are in. You, I asked the question uh, that you are, I made the point that you may be wondering where is God in all of this, that uh, you've been doing the right things, or maybe you haven't been, but there are circumstances that are taking place, and you are feeling overwhelmed, and maybe you have thought it's too late, there's no reason for God to show up. And then we looked at, from Luke chapter 1, there are three names that are mentioned in Luke's story, Zechariah, which means the Lord has remembered, and Elizabeth, my God is an oath, who is absolutely faithful, and John, that God has been gracious and that nothing is impossible with God. And so we've been using the song, O Little Town of Bethlehem, has a line in it that says, the hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. And we are living in a world where it seems that it's very easy to lose sight of hope. That uh, we, you may be wide awake at night wondering uh, about your relationships, wondering about money, wondering about the future, uh, wondering about what presents to buy. Or wondering about what's going on in our world, and you are feeling overwhelmed, and that would be an understatement because overwhelmed is something that we can feel when we think about the political unrest, the fractured nature of our country, and the future can seem scary. Uh, Like most people, I think, I don't like to be afraid, and I don't like going to scary movies. Uh, I don't understand why someone would put themselves in that position. So I just choose to not go see scary movies. Uh, a matter of fact, there's a few that are out right now where like, there's that possession thing going and the, and the heads are spinning and stuff. I don't even like the previews. I'm like, I'm like I can't look at that because I'm going to, that, that freaks me out, right? Well, uh, there was a movie. It, was, it, was, got a lot of, it got a lot of attention. It was called The Quiet Place. And uh, it's just filled with, it's an intense film, and my daughter uh, was there with me, and so I had to act brave. But I was sitting in the chair of the theater, scared to death, not liking that feeling. I don't like being afraid, because fear is real, and I don't understand why someone would want to create fear when you don't have to have that. But I went and saw the movie. It turned out it was pretty good, but I don't understand why anyone would want to fabricate fear. So fear isn't always our enemy. These are some kind of things, as I was thinking about that film that I saw, uh, and as I was thinking about fear, that fear isn't always our enemy, that it can motivate and it can focus our attention, which I think were two of the themes in that film, is that this family was focused on survival, and there was this uh, uh, motivation to survive, and fear doesn't have to be our enemy. It just is something we have to overcome. So hope, as we talk about hopes and fears of all the world, all the world, hope listens to fear, but it doesn't allow fear to be the ultimate stop sign. And so Christmas is about hope. It's about the presence of a Savior born in a manger in the midst 
of fear. Hope conquers fear. That there's a living hope, a perfect love that can dwell inside you. And, and we're using the Gospel of Luke to kind of uh, guide us through that. And so we're going to pick up in Luke chapter 1. It's up on the screen and it says this. And I'm going to stop and mention a few things as we go along and read this. Uh, in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy. Now, Luke is letting, letting us know that the last event that happened where, where this angel uh, had a conversation with Zechariah, he's letting us know that about six months have passed, okay? That's, that's why he tells us about Elizabeth's pregnancy. So in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel. That's the same angel. And if you were here last week, remember I said, it seems like the Bible talks a lot about angels, but really over the centuries, it didn't happen very often that angels showed up. But this is a big deal. God's going to come to earth. So angels are going to announce that because it's a big thing. So God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a village in Galilee, to a virgin named Mary. She was engaged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of King David. So Gabriel appeared to her and said, Greetings, because that's how angels always begin the conversation, I guess. Greetings. Uh, favored woman, the Lord is with you. Now, Luke gives us some information in the context that unless you're a first century Jewish person, you would miss out on some of those things. But Mary, uh, 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 Luke is letting us know, is likely 14, 15, or 16 years old. Uh, as soon as a young girl would approach puberty, she likely already had been promised to another family, and betrothal would be part of this process, and it would be close at hand. See, marriage was too important, and dads out there, you're so going to relate to this. Marriage is too important to be left to children to do on their own. I get an amen. 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 It's too important. There is a process and there is a plan that needs to take place. So in ancient Israel, when it was time for a man and woman to marry, both fathers who had already negotiated years earlier that this son would marry this daughter would now meet when, they, when the daughter had reached puberty. And the fathers would negotiate a bride price because the bride would be going to live with the family. And so this family would be losing a valuable member. So the groom would, the bridegroom would need to pay the family a dowry. And after the fathers had arranged that, they would have a glass of wine to, uh, to commemorate and to mark that the contract had been signed in a sense. And then the couple were formally engaged when that happened. Now the bridegroom, and, and here's what's fascinating about betrothal language. Jesus used betrothal language throughout the New Testament. So this is one of those, if you only remember so many things about ancient Israel customs, this is one of those things that will just, it'll just brighten up the New Testament. As you read things, as you hear Jesus say things, you'll go, Oh my goodness, he's talking betrothal language. When Jesus talks about the church, he uses wedding language. Interesting, isn't it? Because we're called the bride of Christ, right? I mean, Jesus took that stuff serious. So when the bridegroom finds out that the fathers have each drank the glass of wine and have sealed the covenant, sealed the agreement, the young man would then go to his fiance and he would say to her something like this. He would say, 
I'm going home to my father's house to prepare a place for you. Anyone heard that before? And then he would say, when I'm finished, I'll return and take you to be my wife. See, here's what the son's village, and he would begin constructing a section of the house that would be added onto the home that was already there. See, families stayed together. They created these insular communities where, where the sons would build onto the home, and, the, and, uh, and then they would have their family, and they would be all together in this kind of a courtyard central area where they'd have common meals and work together, and, and they, they'd have to share all the resources. And so the bridegroom would be building a house attached to the other homes. And get this, he keeps building until his father says it's ready. And so every day, imagine the bride, because why do you have to do that? Because the young bridegroom, he's just putting things together. He wants to go get his bride. But the father says, no, no, no. Needs to be like this, needs to be like that. So when the father says it's ready, then the bridegroom can go get his bride. Now, this could take three months, six months to a year. It depends on how long the bridegroom is going to be working on this home that is attached to his father's house. Now, the bride, as her fiancé is preparing a new home, she doesn't know when the bridegroom is going to come back. Again, you see this connection, the things Jesus said. And the bridegroom's responsibility was to prepare for the return of the bridegroom. So it would be things like preparing the dress, preparing all of those things that would be needed when the, bride, when the bridegroom shows up to uh, uh, learn uh, some, some uh, homemaking skills and those kinds of things to be prepared for the bridegroom coming. Now it gets even better. While she was in this village, while her bridegroom is living elsewhere. She is officially engaged, and now everyone in the village doesn't call her by her name. Instead, she is called one who has been bought with a price. Oh, yeah, huh? Oh, yeah. One who has been bought with a price. And so for six months Nine months or even longer, when everyone sees her in the village, she's recognized as one who's been bought with a price. And no one knows the exact time when her bridegroom is coming to take her until he enters the village and he blows a shofar, a trumpet. Home with me. That's some good stuff, huh? Now, here's why I tell you that this morning, is that Mary, they're excited about it, aren't they? Yeah. So, so here's why I tell you that, okay? Mary and Joseph are in the middle of this process and plan, all right? This already a plan in place. It's an important plan. It had steps, and everyone knew their responsibility. Mary knew what she was supposed to do. Joseph knew what he was supposed to do. The fathers have already done what they're supposed to do. So they're already in a plan. They already have a process. It's a clear plan. It's a clear path. It's been laid out for them, and everyone knows what's supposed to happen. She had a future ahead of her. It was already a plan that she was seeing was unfolding before her, and with him. 
See, because the plan now is going to change. And it says Mary is confused and disturbed by this change in plans because a new unknown plan will do this to a person every time. And so she's asking the question, what's ahead of me now that the plan changes? The future is unknown. But when God wants to do something new, or when God wants to do something different, or when God wants to do something special, there's often an element of the unknown connected to that. Some of you in this room, and I hope you can remember this, walked into this space or a space like this that was called hope. It may have been here. It may have been the middle school. It may have been a building in Voorhees. Or it may have been a school in Voorhees. Not that they're not buildings, but. But you walked in for the first time, and you walked into the unknown. And you wondered, what are those crazy people going to do? What's it going to be like? Will I like it? Will I want to come back? Here's something really important as we go through this stuff with campuses. Don't forget that. Uh, someone saw me earlier, and they said, uh, are, you, uh, are you okay? It seemed like you got something in your mind. And I'm like... I'm just walking through the building trying to figure out what if somebody's new and they don't know where to go. I'm just like, did the signs make sense? Do, uh, does it look like we know what we're doing? All those kinds of things. Because the unknown brings confusion and it brings disturbance and it brings fear. So it's always important to remember, what would it look like for me to walk in here for the first time? What would it feel like for me to walk in here for the first time. Okay, so that's, sorry, that was a little aside. So uh, we're going to continue in Luke chapter 1 with all this betrothal language in our head, knowing what's going on. Verse 29 says this, confused and disturbed, and this is the reason she's confused and disturbed, because a plan's in place. She knows what's supposed to happen next. She's waiting for Joseph. Why would an angel show up? Confused and disturbed, Mary tried to think what the angel could mean. Don't be afraid, Mary, the angel told her, for you have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be very great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his ancestor David, and he will reign over Israel forever. His kingdom will never end. And with this news, Mary, I imagine, is beginning to think some things. See, there's a potential death sentence in the first century for I'd yet to be with the bridegroom being pregnant. She could be stoned. And so I imagine she's wondering, I wonder what Joseph is going to say about this. I wonder what the village is going to say about this. I wonder what my father is going to say about this. See, even when God is in the plans, even when God is with us, it can still seem confusing and disturbing. And the angel's response to Mary is, don't fear, but have hope. So verse 34, again, it's up on the screen. It says this, Mary asked the angel, but how can this happen? I am a virgin. Now, Luke, if you read all of chapter 1, is making a comparison between Zechariah and Mary. See, Zechariah has some assumptions that are made about him. Assumptions about uh, 
about, about someone in Zechariah's position, right? He was a priest, so he's supposed to be a faith-filled man. He's a priest, he's a man, and he's old. All those things in the first century would be someone you would assume is a faith-filled man. Mary, on the other hand, would be assumed to be less faith-filled because she's a woman and she's young. This was first century thinking. So Luke is trying to make a point here for us, all right? He puts Zachariah's story up, and then, he, and then he presents Mary's story. He says, they both ask what seems to be a good question. But Zachariah's question results in the angel doing what? Mutes him. And Zachariah loses his voice through the whole pregnancy. Mary asks the question, and it seems as if she's asking the same question, and the angel responds differently. Now, this is one of those times when the Greek language has done us a, uh, a wrong. <laughs> Basically, what Zechariah is expressing is Zechariah is asking how, but he's asking how in doubt. He's saying, how can I know this? Just because you said it doesn't mean I'm going to believe it. How can I know this? Give me some proof. Mary is not doubting. In her asking, she's saying, I know this is true because I trust the source, but I don't know how it will happen. See, Mary knows where babies come from, right? And she knows where she's been and where she hasn't been. And so this angel is telling her that she's going to give birth even though she's a virgin. And she says, I believe you, but I don't know how. See, faith is not understanding everything perfectly. But it does mean bringing our questions to God honestly. See, we believe not because we've examined everything and know every detail, but because we trust God. And so kind of the response we can take from this or the, the teaching is we need to ask good questions. We need to ask good questions. God, I don't know how you're going to do it, but I, leap, I believe you're going to do it. So the story continues, and the angel replied, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the baby to be born will be holy, and he will be called the Son of God. What's more, your relative Elizabeth has become pregnant in her old age. People used to say she was barren, but she has conceived a son and is now in her sixth month, for the word of God will never fail. Now, as I read this part of the story of Jesus' birth, I can't help but be in awe of Mary's faith and humility. When an angel tells Mary that she'll be the mother of the Messiah through a virgin birth, she doesn't doubt it can happen. She doesn't complain about what it will mean for her reputation or her future. Uh, I, one of the best things someone's uh, recommended to me, I believe it was back in seminary, they told me to get a Bible with wide margins. And so I have for the longest time, for decades, whenever I buy, look at Bibles, and I haven't bought a new Bible in decades, uh, but, uh, but when I was buying Bibles, I wasn't really that interested in Bibles that had a lot of information that other people told me about. Because this person told me, the best thing you can do is ask good questions. And so get a wide-margin Bible and just write questions in it. And so I spent a lot of time, decades now, when I read stories, 
in the Bible, I just sit there and write questions. Now, it's reached a point where uh, I actually use a pad now because the margins have got a little sloppy. But it brings life to the story. To ask questions like, how long would the rumors about Mary spread through the village? She didn't know that Joseph was going to have a dream and have an angel present. So how long or how much did she worry about explaining this experience to Joseph? How long did the people in town think Joseph was a foolish man for believing the angel story? See, but Mary didn't need convincing. She only asked for some questions of explanation, and she simply believed in something that seemed impossible. Mary trusted that God's plan was bigger than anything that she could imagine. She imagined that the unknowns, or she was okay with the unknowns that she was about to face. See, the unknown is scary. The unknown is, is what brings fear into our lives. It's filled with questions. It's filled with unknown. See, often we fill in the unknown with our imaginations. So we start doing things like answering questions like, what if my situation, or asking questions like, what if my situation is impossible? What if the economy falls apart? What if my spouse will never change? What if our marriage is beyond repair? What if we never get out of debt? Some people would say that fear is the absence of faith. I think I would disagree with that. I think fear is faith in the wrong things. It's faith in the what ifs. Fear is placing your faith in what ifs. So what if I never get well again? What if someone I love gets cancer? What if this job never improves? What if I marry a jerk? And what if I have kids with that jerk and they look just like that jerk? And then I'm reminded of that jerk the rest of my life. <laughs> Fear is placing your faith in what ifs. What if, what if, what if. And when we place our faith in what ifs, fear takes over. Because uh, there's a fear of risking the unknown because of the what ifs. We trust the what ifs. I've lived in the same house since uh, December 2005. We moved into our house, and uh, it's in Akko, New Jersey. And uh, you'd be surprised. I'm in Mount Laurel, and I live in Akko. Uh, and uh, this is where my church is. And so uh, in Akko, uh, a mile down the road is a restaurant called Victory. It's Victory Bar and Grill. You can judge me later. Uh, and uh, um, I have driven by Victory for four years before I ever went in there. Now, here's the thing you need to know about me. I love wings, chicken wings. I have an addiction to chicken wings, all right? I eat them a lot, and I have to be honest, I like all bar food, all right? So we're driving past Victory and never think to stop there. But one day, Kelly says, as we're driving down 73, heading to another restaurant, we should try that. I did. But here's the deal. We went into it, and I thought, this could be awful. And if you look from the outside, it could be. 
This could be horrible. It turns out that it's one of my favorite places to eat chicken wings and other things. <laughs> and I chose to trust the known. I was choosing to trust the known instead of the unknown, and the unknown turned out to be better. Now, that's kind of a corny story. Forgive me for telling you. Here's one that might be a little better for you. In 2005, right before I bought that house, before we bought that house, there was another unknown. Kelly and I were convinced that it was time for us to leave our current church where we had been, where I've been working for 11 years, where we had lived, where we'd raised our kids, and we felt it was time to move to the next place. We didn't know where, and it was an unknown. And there were a lot of questions and a lot of what ifs. What if I don't get a job? What if we don't find a place to live because we lived in a church parsonage at the time. What if we can't afford a house? I still ask that question. Uh, but, but there's a lot of what ifs, right? There's a lot, there was a lot of what ifs. There was, because of those what ifs, there was fear about kids changing schools, about starting new jobs, plenty of unknowns and lots of what ifs. And we had a choice in 2005, trust God or trust the what ifs. And 14 years later, 14, is that the right math? Yeah. Yeah, my, yeah it, in this third week in January, it'll be my 14th year. See if you say that 14 years from now. In 18, there was another time where lots of what ifs. Another unknown. In 2017, it actually began. We began talking about what would it look like to have a campus in Mount Laurel. Lots of fear, lots of what ifs. It's going to cost a lot of money. What if we can't afford it? What if nobody shows up? What if no one wants to set up every Sunday? Plenty of unknowns, plenty of fear, plenty of what ifs. But I can't even imagine if we had not done this. We have met thousands of people because of this Mount Laurel campus. Thousands at festivals, at Chick-fil-A. People that we've connected with at, on Facebook. Did you know that in the last 1,500? I know that's, yeah, that seems like not that big of a deal. But it's huge. We were at 1,400 for a long time. I can't imagine if we had not done this, the impact that we're going to have. Now, here's the deal. There's a lot of what ifs. And they can lead to fear. But I choose to trust God in this. I will not have faith in what ifs. I'm going to believe God. I'm going to trust the source. And how and what it will look like is yet to be determined. I was just talking to someone before the service and we were talking about the difference between the middle school and here. And the story of that, and I've told you that before, is how we ended up here. This was the first building I ever looked at. I drove by and went going, oh, we should go here. And I was told no. And then a few months later, after our first connections with Mount Laurel Township, they said, sure you can. It's going to cost you a whole lot of money, but you can. And I was like, well, we can't afford that. Thanks anyway. And then a few months after that, they email me and say, I heard you're interested in using the 
community center. I said, yeah, but we can't afford it. And they said, well, why would we charge you? Now, I, didn't, I couldn't write that plan, all right? I couldn't have predicted that plan. There were a lot of what-ifs and a lot of fears, but what happens? God was involved. We chose to trust God, and God provided. And we had no idea what the plan was going to be. Don't settle for the known in your life when the unknown could be outstanding. Don't believe the what-ifs. Put your faith in God. See, these unknowns can create fear and they can create what-ifs. And there are times, let me say, you may be thinking this. You may be thinking, there's no other way for me to think or feel, Rick. You see, you may be thinking, I can't forgive that person. I can't forgive them after what they've done to me. It's impossible for me to forgive. You may be thinking, I don't know how I could trust God and be generous when I don't have very much right now. You may think, I don't believe God could ever heal my marriage. I can't see it. It's an unknown. After what happened, there's no way we could have a good marriage again. But what if we responded like Mary? I don't know how it's going to happen, but I will believe with God that it's possible. I can't see a simple formula, okay? It's going to be up on the screen. God is asking you to trust him with an unknown. The outcome is God's responsibility. Obedience is your responsibility. God's responsibility is outcome, always. Whenever we try to handle the outcome, we are taking it away from God. God's responsibility is always the outcome. Our responsibility is always obedience. Outcome is always God's responsibility. Obedience is always our responsibility. Let me explain to you what obedience looks like. Possibly the greatest faith-filled statement in the whole Bible. It's up on the screen. After all the angel says to Mary, Mary says this, I am the Lord's servant. May everything you have said about me come true. And then the angel left her. Humbly trusting in God is what obedience looks like. God's responsibility, outcome. Swim, ride a bike, or drive a car, you always started by trusting someone else. And, and if you've done those things, you remember what that was like. To ask your child, it's okay, I remember swimming in the pool with my kids and having to get them to let go of my neck, right? They're like, they're clinging to you and they're leaving scratches on your neck as you're going, it's okay, it's okay, it's okay, right? They, I'm not gonna let you go. They had to trust. God's responsibility is the outcome, always. Our responsibility is trust. You simply surrender yourself to God, to trust in God. Just like a teenager girl did 2,000 years ago when God's goodness and eternal plan known future and purpose. She couldn't conceive of how it would be possible. And I know that you're in a situation just like that where you can't even imagine the outcome. And that's okay. You don't need responsibility. You don't need to take responsibility for the outcome. You are only responsible for obedience, trusting God.
And so for you, it might be forgiveness. It might be your marriage. It might be an invitation to a friend. See, I think that's a big deal for us. I think that's a big deal for, for people today because there are certain things we don't talk about, right? You don't talk about religion. Because there's too many what ifs. But what if God is asking you to have a spiritual conversation and trusting him with the outcome? And you think it's too overwhelming. What if they say no? What if they say, I don't want to go? We are responsible to trust God in obedience and leave the outcome to him. Humbly submitting to God. See, Christmas is this living hope, a perfect love dwelling in the midst of fear. And when we can understand that this living hope comes into our lives and in the midst of the life around us, it takes away all the fear that might be around us. It recasts, it reorients us towards hope. But we can't try to be responsible for the outcome ourselves. We can only trust in God and obey. We stand with me for closing prayer. I want you uh, with your eyes closed, and we're just going to offer up this prayer to God. And so, God, I thank you for, I thank you, God, for this time. I thank you, God, for this place. I thank you for uh, this opportunity we have to worship you. And God, I pray that uh, the words that have been shared, the words from Scripture, the words that I've shared, God, that they would bring meaning to our lives uh, for this moment. That here in this room, there are those of us who are going through, I would say all of us, going through uh, varying degrees of unknown. And God, it's easy for us to put our faith in the what ifs. What if this? What if that? And God, I pray that we would be able to, like Mary, trust you with the outcome, although it is unknown and we can't see it and we don't know where it's going. God, help us to be obedient and faithful and trust-filled. That we would trust you. That we would humbly submit to you. And that we would know that you are still holding on to us moving us towards and through the unknown. And God, I pray that we can look back and say, what a stellar experience that was. To know that God was orchestrating and guiding and leading and all I had to do was trust. Now I pray that you would go, that the, may the God of hope fill you with joy, fill you up with peace so that your believing lives, filled with the life-giving energy of the Holy Spirit, will brim over with hope. Because there's a world out there that is desperate to know of that kind of hope. A world that's filled with fear, a world that desires to know that the God of the universe loves them with his whole heart, loves them enough that he would leave his throne in heaven so that he could reign in our hearts and lives forever. 
And as you go out these doors, I pray that you would know that you are the salt and light of the world and making a difference in your community. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.